James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Hear the word of God. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you have attempted to share your faith in Christ and the message of the gospel with your friends and neighbors and co-workers, family members, then I'm sure that you have come across a difficulty in your witness, which is that when you try to share Christ with others, you find out that many of the people that you're talking to have been damaged by their past experiences with churches, or other religions or cults. And you need to acknowledge that and understand that, that they've had bad experiences in relation to religion. Some were scarred by a bad experience with a ritualistic, a merely ritualistic church. Some are scarred by past experience with a legalistic church, or maybe a, just a church that's very hypocritical. In some cases, people are just using that past experience as an excuse to avoid the truth and to avoid the claims of Christ. But in many, many cases, there's genuine damage that's been done. There are deep wounds, there's scarring that's taken place on the soul because of bad experiences in their church or religious background. For me, much of my adult life has been processing and dealing with the damage that was done by my family sending me to church. We were a church-going family, but unfortunately the church that we went to was a mainline liberal church, if those terms mean anything to you. What that means to me is that the church didn't preach and teach the scriptures, and the church didn't preach the gospel. It was a religious social club or community club, spiritually dead, lifeless, and so for me, that has wounded me. And it wasn't until I got to fellowship and worship with a truly biblical church where the scripture was the foundation of what's being preached and taught and where the gospel and Christ himself was at the center of what was being preached and taught that I realized what I'd been missing. As we saw last week, 
James, one of the major themes of the book of James is the difference between a false faith and a true faith. James is writing to Christians who have been churched, so to speak. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And he realizes that within the confines of the church, there's always going to be true faith and false faith. There's always going to be wheat and tares, so to speak, in the language of Jesus. And so James here, if you just skip to the end of the passage we just read in verses 27 and 26 and verse 27, he talks about religion. And he contrasts religion that is worthless with religion that is pure and undefiled. Religion that is worthless and religion that is pure and undefiled. Now, I probably have to stop for a second because just the term religion is negative for most of us. In our culture, the idea of religion is, it has a negative connotation to it. But I carefully went back to and did really deep research and went to dictionary.com and looked up the definition for religion. And according to that astute website, it says that religion, this is the definition for religion, it is a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons. Okay, that's religion. A specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons. So you see, religion is actually a neutral term. But you can talk about a good religion and a bad religion. Or maybe more to the point, a true religion and a false religion. Now that's not very popular to say that these days because generally in our culture, either all religions are good, all religions lead to God and therefore all religions are good, or all religions are bad. But we in the church, the true church, need to talk about true religion and false religion. Well, how can we do that? Well, I think we begin to see the connection once we see not just the passage we just read, but the context of it. There's a transition verse between last week's passage, the first 18 verses of chapter 1, and these last verses in chapter 1 that begin in verse 19, and that's verse 18. Let me read that for you again. Of his, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God has brought us, speaking to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, he has brought us forth by means of the truth. True religion begins with the truth. That sounds like an obvious point, but it's profound in this culture. True religion begins with the truth. God established the true religion. There's one true religion, and he established it by the truth that he has given us. And so what are our fundamental set of beliefs and practices? Well, we go to the truth that God has revealed to find out what true religion looks like. But James is actually saying more than just giving us a definition of truth or true religion. He talks about a power behind the truth. He says we were brought forth. He's talking about birthing. We were birthed by the truth. He's talking about being born again. A spiritual birth. We were brought forth by the word of truth. That's how the true religion came into any of our lives who actually know the true religion. It was by a new birth. Peter talks about this new birth 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So God has given us his word. And that word not only tells us what's true, it has the power to enable us to believe that it's true and to be transformed by that truth. So true religion begins with this, God's word. But having this is not enough to have the true religion. And that's what James goes on to talk about. Because many gatherings of professing believers have had this, but not really experienced the true religion. We can point to many churches and denominations through the history of mankind that have adhered to and professed to believe the, the historic creeds of the church, which summarize what scripture teaches, and yet they have also been ritual, merely ritualistic, hypocritical, legalistic, and abusive spiritually to those who are part of them. So just having the word is not enough. And so James goes on to talk about how the word is received. Because having the word is not enough to create a true religion or a true church, although it is the foundation of it. The other element is the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if there is no power of the Holy Spirit, then hearts are not changed, minds are not changed, and the word of God cannot be planted cannot like seed it's it's imperishable seed but if it can't be planted in the soil it cannot bear any fruit so that's really what today's passage is talking about what are the fruits of true religion remember what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 7 he's talking here about false prophets but what he says about false prophets can be also true about false religions because false religions come from false prophets obviously so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, this is what Jesus says to the church. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So how do you know if the religion is a true religion or not? It begins with the word of God that he has revealed. Added to that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. But then there's the third, which is the fruit that is produced. When the Spirit implants the word of God in the heart of a believer it produces good fruit. And that's where James focuses, not just here at the end of chapter 1, but really through the rest of the book. Again, the book of James is about how true faith works. And here we're talking about how does true religion work? What are the fruits of it? What, are, what does it produce in the lives of those who profess faith? First thing that James says is that true religion will lead to a teachable heart. True religion leads to a teachable heart. Look at verses 19 and 20. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, usually we pull this verse out of context. 
I'm sure you've heard this verse referred to many times. It tells how we should treat one another, how we should interact and communicate with one another. And that's not inappropriate. Matter of fact, this verse does summarize the book of Proverbs in many ways. Because the book of Proverbs, that's a lot of what it teaches. It's about being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And the book of Proverbs applies it to mostly interpersonal relationships. But what some commentators, scholars helped me to see as I was digging into this and see this this week, is actually if you put the verse back in its context, James is not dealing with how we interact with each other, that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He's actually dealing with how we respond to the word of God. Look at the verse just before. We just looked at it, verse 18. It's talking about the implanted word. It's about how we receive the word in verse 18. Then go to verse 21, the very next verse afterwards. It says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. So that's interesting. It throws that verse that summarizes Proverbs, it throws it in a different light because he's talking about how we respond when God speaks to us through his word. He's saying, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear the word of God. And I think what he's speaking to there is that kind of childlike faith that Jesus exhorts us to have. The kind of faith that when God says it, I accept it, it's true, because God said it. I accept it with authority. I trust him. God's word is trustworthy because I trust God. And so to listen, to be quick to listen when God speaks through his word is to not be cynical, not be doubtful, but to be eagerly accepting it, like your trusted father, if you have a loving, trusting father, many of you don't, but if you do, then you can understand what he's saying. You need to be quick to listen. Secondly, you need to be slow to speak. In other words, I want my words that I speak to others to be informed by what God has already said to me. I'm going to listen carefully to what God says to me through his word before I speak to others. That's one way I make sure that I am living out true religion. And then finally, slow to anger. What's he talking about there? Well, if you're not receiving the word of God rightly, in a right childlike faith attitude, it's going to make you angry because it's going to challenge what you believe. It's going to challenge your way of life. It's going to bring conviction of sin. And how are you going to respond to that? Unbelief responds in anger. Unbelief responds in defensiveness. Unbelief rejects what the Word of God is saying or reinterprets it. But the kind of quick listening, slow to speak attitude that James is talking about receives it with a humble attitude. We're to have the same attitude that little Samuel had. Remember the little budding priest Samuel in the, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament? When God spoke to him in the tabernacle, what did he say? Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. That's that attitude that we are to have before God's word as he speaks to us. That's the kind of attitude towards the word of God that the Holy Spirit produces within those who are practicing and part of the true religion. Secondly, James says that listening to God's word by faith must lead to changes in us. True religion leads to obedience to God's word. Receiving God's word that way produces 
change. It produces obedience to the word. Verse 21 talks about another aspect of a teachable heart there. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. There's that humility again, that childlike spirit. Receive with meekness the implanted word. When he says implanted word there, it throws up all that agricultural imagery that Jesus loved to use and scripture often uses. And of course, my mind immediately goes to the parable that Jesus told about the sower of the seed. He portrayed himself, he told a story where he represented himself as a sower who sows the seed of the word of God. But as he sowed the seed, the, the response was totally different depending on what kind of soil the seed landed upon. And so as you remember the story, Some of the seed landed on the hard path that had been beaten down and walked upon and made hard so that when the seed fell on the path, the birds came and took it away and it never penetrated that hard at all. The second kind of heart that was represented by soil was the rocky soil, the shallow, shallow dirt with mostly rocks. And so when the seed landed on that dirt, it wasn't able to grow roots and so it wasn't able to grow grow, let alone bear any fruit. The third type of soil that Jesus talked about was the kind that had the thorns and the weeds in it, and the thorns and the weeds choked out the seed so that it could not develop roots and bear fruit. And then there was that last kind of soil, the kind that was prepared, the kind of soil that received the seed willingly, joyfully, the heart that that receives the word of God and it, it develops roots and it grows and it bears fruit, abundant fruit, a hundredfold. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what James is talking about. Is if you have that kind of a prepared heart that's ready to receive the word, the word will produce life. It'll grow and bear fruit in your life. But part of that preparation, notice what he's saying. You've got to get rid of the filthiness. You've got to get rid of the dirt, the filthiness in the soil of your heart. You've got to turn away from the rampant wickedness that surrounds you and the world around you. In other words, as James will make the point over and over again in the coming chapters, faith, if it's true faith, is always accompanied by repentance. And it's a characteristic of true faith that it's a repentant faith. And so what James is reminding us of here is that you can't hold on to your sin and also receive the life-giving word. You've got to be willing to give up your sin. You've got to confess your sin. Turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ. If your heart is repentant by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you, then when the seed is planted, it develops roots and grows and bears fruit. That's the imagery that James is laying before us. A humble and submissive heart, the kind of teachable heart that he's talking about, is by necessity a repentant heart that is increasingly hating the sin that still remains in us and turning away from it and turning to our gracious God to be delivered from it. There are too many Christians that try to hold on to both their sin and also receive the word of God, and you can't do them both at the same time. And the reason that the word of God is not being planted in your heart is very, 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 very possible. It's because you're holding on to some sin. You're not in a state of repentance in your heart before God. That brings us to the next point that uh, James makes in verse 22, talking about 
the obedience to the word. He says in verse 22, and this is probably the most familiar phrase of the whole book of James, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He's addressing a problem in the church, you know, everywhere. In every age, every era, every place the church has been, there's always this problem of those, you talk about there's true religion and false religion within the church, and there are those who merely listen to the word, but then there are those who listen and then do what the word tells us to do. There have been many people, James talks about, be careful about deceiving yourselves. It is so possible to deceive yourself that you're, truly in the right religion in right relationship with God when you're merely listening and not doing back in 400 AD so we're going way back in church history 400 AD John Chrysostom was one of the most famous preachers of that era he was would call him the Billy Graham of that era but I think that would be an insult to John Chrysostom I loved Billy Graham but John Chrysostom was in another league um, but John Christensen preached a sermon, and in one statement he made in the sermon, sounds like he's talking about today, but he's actually talking about his own time. Listen to what he said. Most people listen to a preacher for pleasure, not profit, as though it were a play or a concert. In 400 AD, that was the problem he saw in the church. That most people listen to a preacher for pleasure, not profit, as though it were a play or a concert. What he's alluding to there is what we see in the church wherever it is which is there are two kinds of listeners when the word of God is being read or proclaimed or exposited. Two kinds of listeners, two modes of listening. Either as a consumer, which means you're there to be entertained, and therefore you're quick to critique the liturgy, the music, the preaching, as though it were just a performance to entertain. Or the other type of listening is as a real disciple listening carefully like a child to his father's word in order to find out who God wants you to be, how he wants you to live, where he wants you to go. That's the kind of listening that James is talking about that leads to bearing fruit in your life. James is only saying what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or as the apostle John later wrote, Whoever says, I know him, I know Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. He's lied to himself and he's lied to those around him. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. You see, when the word and the spirit are both present in a disciple or in a church, it produces fruit. It must. Verses 23 to 25 talks about the role that the word, not just the initial encounter with the word, but the perseverance in the word, what an important factor that is. Consistent time and effort to study God's word is essential to maintaining obedience. He compares there in verses 23 through 25, he compares scripture to a mirror, which at first sounds like kind of an odd analogy. But he says, you know, he's saying, when you look in a mirror, you're looking to see what you really look like. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of common for me is to kind of have a picture of what I look like in my head. But when I look in a mirror, like, oh, whoa, you know, where did that come from? <laughs> and the older I get, the more shocking that realization is when I look in the mirror, see what I genuinely, objectively look like. I really don't look 30 anymore. <laughs> he's saying that's what the word of God is like. You look into the word of God and it shows you who you really are as God sees you, 
because God is the only one who looks at you objectively, and he sees you exactly as you are in heart and soul as well as body. And you look in the Word of God and you see who you are. In some ways, it's an encouraging picture because you look in the Word of God and you find out, I'm not some creature that mutated and randomly evolved into the state that I am over myriads of thousands of millions of years. That's not who I am. I find out that I'm actually created by God, by his word. I'm created. I'm created in his image. I'm created to be a ruler, a prince, a king on the earth under his authority to steward his creation, to serve the creation for his glory. It's very encouraging, but then you get to chapter 3 of the book and you find out that we are desperately wicked. We are sinners through and through. We have rebelled against this good creator and we desperately need a savior. And so we look in this mirror and we see, yes, what we were supposed to be, but then we see what we are and then we see the horrific ugliness of our sin. And worse than that, we find out that we, we, we serve this sin. We're, we're slaves to this sin. We live for false gods and we're idolaters in the heart. But then we keep reading and we realize that God has shown grace from the very beginning and that he has indeed sent a savior. There is one to whom we can go to find forgiveness and restoration from the guilt and the damage of the sin in our lives. In John Bunyan's great novel, Pilgrim's Progress, and, you know, through all the ages of the church, that's always been, I've heard, the second most popular book in the church. It's, it's, it's so beautiful in its illustration of the Christian life. Unfortunately, I feel like people don't read it much anymore. You really need to. Look it up. It's free online. <laughs> don't have to buy it. Find it online. In Pilgrim's Progress, in the second part, which is actually the lesser-known part of the book, there's a part of the story where Christiana, which is Christian's wife, if you know who Christian was in the beginning of the book, his wife, Christiana, and her friends go to this palace where the good shepherds live and where they're, they're cared for. And in that palace, they find uh, this beautiful mirror, large, beautiful mirror. And Christiana and her friend Mercy long to have it. They ask for it. Can we please have this mirror? And what did they love about it so much? Well, here's the description that John Bunyan gives. He says, Now this glass, this mirror, was one of a thousand. It would present a man one way, with his own features exactly, but turn it another way, and it would show one the very face and similitude of the prince of pilgrims himself, the very crown of thorns upon his head, the holes in his hands, in his feet, and his side. You see, that's what the mirror of the word of God does for us. It shows us our sin, but it shows us our Savior. And that's the good news. Having received the gift of salvation, we not just look into the word. You can't just look into the word and then walk away. That's what James is, worried, is concerned about, is that these professing Christians... I have neglect, they've walked away from the word. They say, oh yeah, I got that message, I understand. And they've walked away. And James says, if you don't continue in it, you're going to forget who you are, and you're going to walk farther and farther away. And there's just a basic truth about discipleship that's being illustrated by the concept of this mirror, is you need to be looking in that mirror every day. 
You need to be constantly re be reminded of who you are as God sees you as a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace. And that's how you maintain your faith. How you continue to walk in the steps of the true religion. Probably just about everybody in this room would tell me that you long to be a spiritually mature Christian. You're tired of being a weak Christian. You're tired of having a weak faith. You're tired of being caught up in your sins. You want to be like Jesus Christ. You want to have a strong faith. You want to be mature. But then in the same breath, you'll say, but I can't find time to read the word. And what James is saying is that you can't have one without, just like you can't have sin and have the word, you have to have the word in order to know Christ and to continue to walk in his ways. And so I would just challenge all of you, no matter where you are in your level of commitment to being consistently in the word, consistently, daily, looking into that mirror, I challenge you to take it to another level if you truly want to be more like Christ and you truly want to be mature in your faith. And then what does faith see? How does faith see this word in the life, this mirror, what effect it has? Look at verse 25. He says, in real religion, true disciples see God's word as the law of liberty. The law of liberty. That's not how natural man looks at the word of God. That's not how sinners look at God's law. Sinners raised their fist in anger at the word of God, saying, how dare you restrict my personal freedom? How dare you take these pleasures away from me? How dare you steal my glory? That's how the natural man responds to the law and to the word of God. But if the Holy Spirit has implanted the word in your heart and you're born again by grace, then you see the law as something entirely, almost 180 degrees opposite. You see it as the law of liberty. It's the path of freedom. It's where, that's how you get to the good life. That's how you get to where God wants you to be. That's where you find real peace and real satisfaction and real joy, not like the fake stuff the world tries to offer you. Many of you, if you were parents back in the late 80s or early 90s, you knew probably the most popular parenting book in our theological circles anyway was Ted Tripp's uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And in that book, he uses an analogy uh, of parenting. And he says, parents, you need to, first of all, teach your kids that your rules are based upon and subordinate to God's rules, that God, the rules that God has given us in his word. So, your, your kids need to understand that it's not because I say so, it's because God says so. And that your rules is, but you're trying as hard as you can to make your rules match up with what, and apply what God's rules say. But then secondly, he says, the other lesson you need your kids to learn is that those rules are like a boundary that is around what he calls the circle of blessing. That it's inside the boundaries of God's law that we find true security, true peace, true love, true joy, true hope. And if you look at the law of God, the word of God, the commandments of God as that boundary, you understand that when you break, break that down that boundary, when you cross that boundary, when you go outside of the boundary, what you find is utter darkness. What you find is emptiness. What you find is grief and loss and slavery and ultimately death. And what a radically different way to look at the commandments of God. It's the law of liberty. It's the protection for our freedom. 
is what it is. It's the circle of blessing. Which brings us to Jane's last point of what real religion produces. What kind of fruit does real religion produce? Sacrificial service to others. Look at verses 26 and 27. In verses 26 and verses 27, he lists three marks of the true religion. Just read through it a second, you'll see that. He's giving three identifying marks of the true religion that God has given to us. Two of them we've already talked about. He talks about controlling our tongues, how we speak. And he'll get back to that at length in chapter 3. Then he talks about, the last one he lists is keeping oneself unstained from the world. And we've already talked about that real faith and real religion is about repentance and turning from sin and doing the word of God, keeping the commandments because they're the law of liberty. But then he lists another one, kind of out of the blue. He says that the third mark of the true religion is that we visit orphans and widows. The word visit there is the word we get overseer from. It's another term for elder in the church. It's the idea of going to somebody in need, investigating that need carefully, and sacrificing and serving to meet that need. That's what it means to visit. He's saying that we in the church need to do that for the widows and orphans. Now, why the widows and orphans? Because in that society, and it's still true today in many ways, but in that society especially, those were the lowest rung of society. Those were the most needy, the most helpless people. There were no social welfare programs back in first century Judea. No government safety net. If you didn't have family to care for you, you were hopeless. And your only hope was that somebody would have mercy upon you and sacrifice their own resources to meet your need. And James is saying, if you have received the word of God, you understand the gospel, you understand who Jesus Christ is, and you understand that you were a sinner deserving only of hell for eternity, and God had grace upon you and sent his son to die for you, and gave you the gift of eternal life, and entered into a father-child relationship with you, if you understand that, how can you look at a widow or orphan in, in their helpless need and say, there but for the grace of God go I? And I want to do for that person what God has done for me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, listen to the terms that Paul uses to describe the gospel. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So how could you look at anybody who's poor, whether it's in the, their family status or their wealth or their, their physical illness, their physical situation, whatever it might be, how could you look at them and not say, I must give to them as God has first given to me. That's the fruit of real religion, is to care for anyone in need. Not to do it in a condescending way, but to do it in a humble way, a childlike way that says, I don't deserve anything, but look at what God has given to me. So it's a joy to me to be like my Lord Jesus Christ and to give to you out of what he has first given to me by grace. In Acts chapter 6, this is like the very beginning of the history of the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles, who are the leaders, the elders, the leaders of the church, 
They saw the way the ministry of the church was developing and they recognized that an a-, a central aspect of true religion and a central aspect of the gospel was being neglected because widows were not being served and sacrificed for. So they established the office of deacon. There's only two offices according to scripture in the, in the church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. The apostles did not set up an office of youth ministry. They didn't set up an office of administrative assistant. They didn't set up an office of, of worship leader. Those things are all good, but he didn't set up an office for the, the, the apostles didn't set up an office for that purpose. What, were the, what was the office of the elder for, according to Acts 6? It was to do the ministry of the word and prayer. What was the office of the deacon established for? To care for the orphan and widow. To show mercy to the needs of those in the world. So what's the most important identifying marks of true religion in the true church of Jesus Christ? The word of God, prayer, and ministry to the needy. That's the fruit of true religion. I recently, I was reading about a book, I didn't read the book itself, but I, re- I was reading about a book that was written by three uh, Chinese pastors who were writing about the house church movement in China. And they were talking about the persecution that the church had endured for generations in China. And this sentence jumped out at me in, in light of the studies that I was doing in James chapter 1. This is what it said. This is, this is the, the perspective of these Chinese pastors. It says, true disciples of Jesus Christ are usually people that few understand. They are viewed as potentially unstable fanatics. Often the same government that tolerates the existence of mere believers will stop at no ends to completely eradicate any true disciples within their borders. That's always been true in the history of the church. That the powers that be that are opposed to the gospel, opposed to the church in this world, they don't fear mere believers. They don't fear fake Christianity, fake religion. They they, they fear our allegiance to Jesus Christ. They fear the gospel that we preach. All the talk that we, you know, all this talk about obedience and fruit being necessary, don't miss the fact that this is based in grace. That our experience, those of us who truly know and love Jesus Christ, it began when God, by his grace, implanted his word in our heart to bring us new life. We were dead until he brought new life through his word. But having planted his word by his Holy Spirit in our hearts, it inevitably must grow and bear fruit. And James has told us what these fruits look like. The word of Christ transforms us so that we have a teachable heart, obedience to God's word, and sacrificial service. These are what we call evidences of grace. We love that phrase around here. We use it all the time. These are evidences of grace the grace of the word being planted in our hearts. And so I can't help but wrap up by just reading to you again the vision statement of this church because this is, you know, it sounds very simple, sounds very basic in terms of what a real church, real religion, and real discipleship should look like, but it's a very high goal. And so let me read it for you again. By God's grace, we at Oakwood long to become oaks of righteousness, growing roots deep in God's word, bearing the fruit of God-centered holiness and worship and branching out with gospel-centered witness and service to State College, Penn State, Central Pennsylvania, and the world. 
May God have grace upon us and enable us to live out that vision until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that the word of God was planted in our hearts. Thank you for the hope, the peace, the joy that it has brought to us, the forgiveness of sin that we have experienced. And Lord, I pray that as we have meditated upon what James is saying to us here in chapter 1, we would walk out of this place this, this afternoon with a renewed commitment to looking daily intently into the word of God as a mirror of our souls and our lives. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring us under conviction of sin so that we might be immersed in your grace again and go forth to obey, to obey your word which has changed us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.